A few months ago, I was discussing in our Tuesday morning Bible study. By the way, if you don't know, we gather every Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock over there in room 120, and we're studying the Gospel of John. Excuse me. We have been for the last couple of years. We probably will for the next six or so. Kidding. It's just the way it feels at times. Uh, I was discussing with them uh, the state of Christianity in America, and in particular, the astounding disparity between those who self-identify as Christians and those, on the other hand, who by several observable metrics actually are Christians. According to a 2016 survey conducted by the Barna Group, 73% of Americans identify as Christian. 73%, nearly three-fourths, compared to only 6% who identify as religious other. Those would be Muslims, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, etc. And 20% of Americans claim no religion at all. Uh, those would be agnostics and atheists. But of those 73% who self-identify as Christians, only 31% are what Barna would call practicing Christians. Which means that they attend a church service at least once a month, and they say that their faith is very important in their life. <clears throat> so, I take this, these, this data, these statistics from these 5,137 interviews, and operating under what I would think is the most basic assumption that a non-practicing Christian is actually a non-Christian, only three in ten Americans can claim to be Christians with even a modicum of legitimacy. Three-tenths, 31%. All right, but let's press even a little bit further because attending a church service once a month and claiming that your faith is important in your life is not what it means to be a New Testament Christian. The Barna Group identifies an evangelical Christian as a person who fits eight specific criteria. Okay? Number one, they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their lives. And they believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Number two, they say that their faith is very important in their everyday life. Number three, they believe they have a personal responsibility. Whether they do it or not, they believe that they have a personal responsibility to share their faith with those who do not know Christ. Number four, they believe in the existence of Satan. Number five, they believe in the sinlessness of Christ. Number six, they believe the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. Number seven, they believe eternal salvation is possible only through grace and not by works. And number eight, they believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. Okay? Eight specific criterion 
describes what the Barna group would call an evangelical Christian. Now, if that's the criterion by which one is classified as an evangelical, then I'm going to submit to you that evangelical Christians are not some subset of all Christians, but rather evangelical Christians are Christians. A past conversion to personal faith in Christ that continues to define your life today a felt responsibility for evangelism, belief in the existence of Satan and of evil, belief in the perfect righteousness of Christ, belief in the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, belief in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and belief in an omniscient, omnipotent, and perfect God who is both creator and sovereign does not make you a special category of super-Christian. That is what it means to be a Christian. And when you define a Christian by that criterion, do you know what the percentage of Americans are that qualify? Seven. Seven percent of Americans are actually Christians by a biblical definition of the term, which if you do the math means that 93% of American citizens are not. And I suspect that that number seven is still quite high, but we've got to start somewhere. Now, I'm not as concerned at the 93 and 7 disparity. My primary concern is that 73% of Christians think that they're Christians or 73% of Americans think that they're Christians, and only 7% actually are. So what accounts for this tremendous gap between perception and reality? I think it is the pervasive confusion over who exactly Jesus is. Evidently, most American Christians in the broad sense of the term, do not know, trust, or follow the biblical Christ. Their faith is in a Jesus of their own imagination, a Christ of their own making, in essence, an, an idol, which makes 66% of Americans idolaters. Most American Christians are idolaters worshiping a false Christ who is not the Jesus of the Bible. And I think that irreparable damage has been done to the American church and to our witness in the world by this lack of definition. When unbelievers think of American Christians, they are probably not thinking of the 7% who actually are. They're probably thinking of the 66% who name the name of Christ, but do not bear the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit of Christ does not dwell within them. And the sad reality is that if you were to take that 66% who claim to follow Christ but don't actually follow Christ by any biblical definition of the term and you were to confront them with the Jesus of the Bible, they would reject him out of hand. How do I know? Because it happened over and over and over again in the days of Jesus' public ministry. 
For instance, in John chapter 6, after speaking a number of difficult and divisive truths in the synagogue at Capernaum, John rather records that, John 6.60, when many of his disciples, this is the 66 percenters, when many of his disciples heard it, that is the things that he said, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about it, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you were to see me in all of my reality and all of my glory? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. A day earlier, at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus had a following in Galilee of more than 5,000 men, not counting women and children, who, after seeing him multiply the bread and the fish and feed the multitude, wanted to take him by force and make him their king, John 6, 15. 24 hours later, Jesus was abandoned by all but 12, and one of them was a devil, John 6, 70. 5,000 to 11. That's an even bigger gap than 73% to 7. In other words, the Christ that the crowds wanted, the one who fed them the miracle bread, the one they wanted to take by force and make him their king, was not the Christ that Jesus came to be. Which should tell us something. Everything rides upon us knowing, trusting, and following the real Jesus the biblical Christ, because a false Christ is no Christ at all and cannot save. We need to know the Jesus who has the words of eternal life, the Christ who is the Holy One of God. So my question to you at the outset of this morning's message is, which group are you in? Are you in the 66% that name the name of Christ but don't fit any biblical definition of a disciple of Jesus? Or or are you in the 7% that know, trust, and follow the biblical Christ? That's why we're in Mark's gospel, to help you discern the difference. We're in Mark's gospel so that week in and week out, we may be confronted with the Christ of the Bible and not a figment of our imaginations, an idol of our own making, a Jesus as we want him to be. This morning, we're going to survey four snapshots of the biblical Christ. 
in order that we may examine our hearts to see if the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that we trust, and the Jesus that we follow is the Jesus that Mark presents. The first snapshot takes us out to the Judean wilderness where a wild-eyed prophet dressed in camel hair and a leather belt is thundering away about the imminent coming of the Lord and he's calling upon the vast multitudes that have come to hear him preach to repent of their sins and to be baptized in preparation for the Messiah's appearing. Suddenly, out of, out of this vast crowd steps a rather normal-looking Galilean Jew. At first, the baptizer does not recognize him, but then, by the revelation of the Spirit, the light dawned, and John knew who it was that stood before him. Initially, John expressed reluctance to baptize Jesus. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who should be baptizing him? But Jesus eventually prevailed, explaining to John that this was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus was baptized there in the Jordan River. But nobody anticipated what took place next. Verse 9 of chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Last week we focused upon the Old Testament background for this event, particularly Isaiah 40 to 66. But today, I want to focus on the Father's words regarding the Son. His declaration that this Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee was indeed his own beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. So if we are to know, trust, and follow the biblical Christ, here's my first point. First and foremost, we need to know, trust, and follow him as the divine Son of God. 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You cannot know, trust, and follow the biblical Christ until you know, trust, and follow him as the Son of God. And the fundamental attribute that is expressed in that statement, you are my beloved Son, is his absolute deity. It is true that the Old Testament sometimes referred to angels as sons of God, Job 1 and 2 and 38, maybe Genesis 6. And it's true that in the New Testament, those who have been born of the Spirit and have received Christ as Lord are called the children of God, the sons and the daughters of God. But nowhere in Scripture is any but Jesus called the Son of God. He is the Son of God in a unique sense. He is the unique, only begotten Son of the Father. What is involved in this unique sonship? Well, I'm going to suggest to you three attributes at least. When we think of the biblical Christ, we need to think of Him in three ways with reference to this beloved Son declaration. First, He possesses absolute deity. Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Second, he, he possesses absolute equality with the Father. Jesus said some ab- absurd things during his ministry about who he was in relation to the Father. Just listen, listen and put yourself in the situation of a first century Jew hearing this ordinary carpenter from Galilee say things like this. John 5, 19, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 5, 19. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, John 5, 18. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He possesses absolute equality with the Father. And finally, possessing absolute deity and absolute Equality, he possesses absolute sovereignty. Jesus said in John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus says, The Father has given me sovereignty over who lives and who dies, who is saved and who is judged. Why? So that all men may honor, same word as worship, may worship me just as they worship the Father. Those are statements that will get you killed. And they did. When the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove and the heavenly voice proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth to be the beloved Son of God with absolute deity and absolute equality and absolute sovereignty, this is the biblical Christ that was being revealed. A Christ who is God in the flesh. A Christ who created the world. A Christ who upholds the universe by the word of his power. A Christ who stands in unique Trinitarian relationship to the Father and the Spirit. A Christ who has sole and sovereign authority to raise the dead and to judge the earth. And it should be evident to you that that is not the Jesus that most of America worships. Or else the life and the worship of American Christians would look radically different than it does. But my question, my concern this morning is not with those churches and those Christians. My concern is with this church and with us. Is this the Jesus we know, trust, and follow? The second snapshot takes us away from the Jordan and out into the arid and the desolate Judean wilderness. It is an inhospitable wasteland filled with rocky peaks and desert hills and deep ravines. It is a land of loneliness and danger and terror, of death and judgment and evil spirits. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Why? Why after descending upon Jesus in glory at his baptism, does the Spirit now drive him out into the God-forsaken wilderness? I think the answer to that question is the same as to why the sinless Son of God 
needed to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. It was to fulfill all righteousness. When I studied this passage, I expected to find in these verses a picture of Jesus as the second Adam. In other words, just as the first Adam was driven out of Eden into the wilderness because of his sin, so must the second Adam be driven out into the wilderness in order to overcome sin and secure by his righteousness redemption for the fallen sons of Adam that he might bring them back into the garden. In other words, I was reading Genesis into the wilderness temptations. And that, that may be in the back of Mark's mind. I think it's at the forefront of Matthew and Luke's description of this event. But I don't think it's the primary thought behind this passage. Rather, let me tell you why I think Mark records this and why he records it in the way he does. That is, leaving out all of the details of the wilderness temptation and putting in a few details that aren't found in Matthew and Luke. I think that Mark is presenting Jesus, God's beloved son, as the true Israel who succeeds in the wilderness where the first Israel failed. In other words, I think that we should read Mark 1, 12, and 13 against the backdrop of Exodus and Numbers. Let me give you some reasons why. Verses 12 and 13 are connected to verses 9 and 11 by that phrase, and immediately, which shows that verses 12 and 13 is the natural consequence of what happened in verses 9 through 11. In other words, it's because Jesus is the beloved Son that the Spirit had to drive him out into the wilderness. In verse 11, God said of Jesus, you are my beloved son, which is very similar to what God had said about Israel in Exodus 4.22. Behold, Israel is my firstborn. After delivering Israel from Pharaoh and bringing them safely through the waters of the Red Sea, God brought Israel out into the wilderness to be tested, which is exactly what he's done with Jesus. After coming through the waters of baptism, God has brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness being tempted and tested, just like Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness undergoing the same. Moses, the chief representative of Israel in the Old Covenant, he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, as did Elijah. Even so, Jesus fasted for 40 days, according to Matthew 4.2. And finally, Israel was attended by angels throughout their time in the wilderness. Exodus chapters 14, 23, 33. You can grab the manuscript off the internet tomorrow and you'll be able to track down all of these references. Well, even so, Mark says that the angels were ministering to Jesus in the wilderness. So I think think that Mark is taking the the Exodus wilderness narratives from Exodus and, and Numbers, and he's putting that against the background, background of Jesus' time in the wilderness, and he's showing that Jesus is doing what Israel had done, but where Israel failed, Jesus is succeeding. And so Jesus is the true Son of God. He is the true Israel, and all who are in him by faith, he is gathering into a new Israel, a new people of God that he will lead through the wilderness of this world and take into Zion the promised land. There's an interesting note. I don't have time to go into it, but I'd refer you to the the manuscript again. Why does Mark say, and he was with the wild animals? Nobody else 
Matthew, Luke, they don't say that, only Mark. I give you a hint, it has to do with the fact that the congregation to whom he writes are enduring intense persecution or being torn apart by wild beasts, but you can read that for yourselves. So let me, let me sum this point up. Here's the significance of the wilderness temptations of Jesus for us today. So many American Christians do not conceive of the Christian life as a wilderness journey filled with trial and temptation. That's the, that's the predominant biblical image of your everyday life in this world. You're in the wilderness undergoing trials and temptations as you march to Zion. But that's not the way that most American Christians view their life. And that's why when trials and temptations come, just like Israel in the desert, they say, man, it was so much better back in Egypt where we had plenty of food to eat and plenty of water to drink and life was better back there. Let's turn around and go back. But just as Jesus was baptized and then driven into the wilderness to be tempted, so will we. And the very same resources by which Jesus triumphed over those temptations in the wilderness, the Spirit, the Word, the angels, those are the very same resources that are available to us throughout our wilderness journey. The Spirit, the Word, and the angels. Jesus, in other words, is the true Israel who comes into the wilderness temptation, triumphs over sin, comes through it in pristine covenant faithfulness, fulfilling all righteousness, and then calling all of us to follow him through the wilderness, marching to Zion, to the promised land, and to everlasting joy and peace in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. The third snapshot finds us in Galilee. All right, so now we're up in Galilee. <clears throat> we're on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in that Jewish region, far away from the bustling metropolis of Jerusalem. This is where the carpenter was raised. And by all accounts, this is where he lived a very normal, faithful, first century Jewish life until the day when he was about 30 years old and he departed Nazareth and headed out into the wilderness, out to the Jordan, out to the baptizer. Jesus had been gone for quite a while, and the people of Galilee were largely unaware of what had transpired out there by the Jordan River. Oh, there had been reports coming back from the Jordan that, that this Jesus of Nazareth had become something of a rabbi and had gained quite a following, a following that even was surpassing and eclipsing that of John himself. But I imagine that the people of Galilee dismissed those stories as nothing but idle gossip and wild exaggeration because the Jesus that they knew was just so ordinary until he comes back. And that's where we pick up in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's an interesting question raised by these verses. Namely, what did Jesus preach? Mark says that he preached the gospel of God. 
But I don't think that Mark means exactly the same thing that, for instance, Paul means when he repeatedly uses that phrase, or what we mean when we speak about the gospel of God. When we speak about the gospel, we're making specific reference to the good news, that's what the word gospel means, to the good news of forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and everlasting life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for all who will repent and believe. That's the gospel. But I don't think that's what Jesus preached. Not exactly. For one thing, when Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, he hadn't yet been crucified and raised. And for another thing, as we will see, and for reasons that we will discuss throughout this journey through Mark, especially early on in his public ministry, Jesus didn't talk about himself a whole lot. In fact, he prevented people from talking about him. So what what was the content of his preaching when it says that he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God? The main content of his preaching was the kingdom of God. It's given there in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. This is is Mark's summary statement of Jesus' sermons. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean the kingdom of God is at hand? We're going to cover that in some length when we get to Mark chapter 4 and the parables of the kingdom, but for right now, here's what you need to know. The kingdom of God was the hope of the Old Testament prophets. If you read the the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, like the second half of your Old Testament, they're all looking ahead at something. And what they're looking forward to is the coming kingdom of God. And there's a reason for that. See, throughout Israel's history, if you were to read the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles, you're going to read a story of a kingdom of Israel that was divided and disintegrated by sin and corruption and idolatry and eventually was destroyed. First, the northern kingdom of Israel destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and then the southern kingdom of Judah destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And as the prophets watched these events transpire, and then after they transpired, a hope began to emerge by the Spirit within them that there was coming a time when God would come, when He would return to reign upon the earth, when He would bring salvation and peace and righteousness and joy to His elect, which included the Gentile nations, and He would bring judgment and destruction upon His enemies, which included unfaithful Israelites. For instance, listen to these words from Mark's favorite Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, and and look for the gospel of the kingdom in these words. It's a familiar passage to you. It comes from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, 
And unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We could have read a hundred verses like that. A coming kingdom, righteousness, peace, salvation for the nations. And when Jesus comes, he says, the time of preparation for that kingdom is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Therefore, prepare yourselves by repenting and turning to God in faith and believing my message. That's what Jesus proclaimed. Now, you can see a problem, can't you? It goes like this. When Jesus preached that the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God was at hand, the people of Galilee must have looked around at all of the Roman soldiers bustling around and said, you can't be serious. Where is the son of David? Where is the Messiah? Is it you? You're not what we expected. Where are the armies of heaven? Where is the glory of the Lord? So many people in Jesus' day stumbled over Jesus' message because they did not understand that the kingdom that Jesus had come to declare and to establish was hidden. It was a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom, John 18, 36, not of this world. They didn't understand and they stumbled over the truth that before the king could come in power and glory, he must come in humility and weakness and suffering because there was a ransom for sin that must be paid before sinners could be justified and reconciled to God and brought into the kingdom. Make no mistake, the kingdom of God will come in power and glory at the end of the age, but not yet. Not at his first coming. At his first coming and still today, the kingdom of God that Jesus declared and the kingdom which he died to inaugurate is a spiritual kingdom. It is invisible. It is hidden. It is manifested visibly upon this earth in his gathered church. And it must be entered into by repentance and faith. And this is one reason why Jesus didn't come in word only, but came wielding miraculous power such as had never before been seen in Israel. As the sick were healed, as the blind received sight, as the deaf were made to hear, as the lepers were cleansed, as the, as the demons groveled at his feet in terror before he cast them out, as the dead were raised, and, and ultimately in his own resurrection from the dead, that invisible kingdom was just for the briefest of moments made visible and the king was revealed for who he truly is. But miracles were never the core of his ministry, and they were never the center of his message. They were the external, visible validation of his message, which was and is today. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. 
So the third snapshot, verses 14 and 15, reveals Jesus as the messianic prophet who proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, who calls men and women to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel message, and so to enter the kingdom and to flee from the wrath that is to come. But there's a fourth, and this takes us now to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee where dozens of small fishing boats are pulled up there on the rocky beach and fishermen are mending their nets after a long night's work. A cool breeze is coming off of the waters and in the morning light, Jesus is walking upon the shore. And he stops and he looks at two large, broad-shouldered men standing waist-deep in the water, hurling their nets, their weighted nets out in a circular motion out towards the deep. Verse 16 Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus immediately said to them, or said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. This was not the first encounter between Jesus and Simon and Andrew. Both of them had made the pilgrimage up to the Jordan River to hear John the Baptist preach, and they're even in John chapter 1 described as disciples of John. In fact, Andrew was there that day when John saw Jesus from afar and pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that, it says that Andrew went and found his brother Peter, and the two spent the day with Jesus. But now it seems Jesus has come to find them. They've returned home, and Jesus has come to find them in Galilee. And when he does, he commands them to follow him. And not this time for a day only, but for the rest of their lives. In fact, he says, I'm going to change your vocation. No longer are you going to fish for fish. Now you're going to fish for men. He likewise calls two other brothers there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, James and John, who also leave behind their boat and their nets and their former lives to follow the Master. There's something instructive about this scene and the way that they immediately leave everything and go and follow Jesus. The obedience of these four men to the call of Christ becomes a paradigm for anyone who would follow after Jesus. See, these are not men who have nothing to lose. Sometimes we think of them as just poor Galilean fishermen. They probably weren't. Fishing was big business in Galilee. Ancient sources indicate that fish from the Sea of Galilee were sold in markets as far away as Alexandria in Egypt or Antioch in Syria. James Edwards writes, quote, Fishermen in Galilee competed, or that fishermen in Galilee competed in the larger Mediterranean world testifies to their skill, their prosperity, and their ingenuity, and probably also to their command of Greek, which was the international language of business and culture. The fishermen whom Jesus called were scarcely indigent day laborers. In order to survive in their market league, they needed to be, and doubtlessly were, shrewd and successful businessmen. I mean, for instance, Simon was wealthy enough to own his own home in Capernaum. James and John 
along with their father Zebedee, ran a big enough business to have hired servants. And John, according to John 18, 15, was even known, his family was known by the high priest in Jerusalem. In other words, these are not men who are leaving nothing behind. They're leaving behind a life and a relatively good one to follow a master who has no place to lay his head and is headed for a cross. That is radical obedience to the call of Christ, and no less is demanded of any today who would follow after him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his, sa- his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In verses 16 to 20, Mark presents Jesus as a rabbi, as a master who calls his disciples out from their former lives and into a new relationship in which they follow him as he teaches them and transforms them and trains them to become fishers of men who likewise will go out into the world and proclaim, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And I think it's here that many American Christians have gone wrong. Because they think that Jesus has called them to some intellectual decision about whether or not he lived, died, and rose again, as if that's what it means to follow Jesus. Yes, I believe the facts of the gospel. That's not biblical faith. Jesus calls sinners to follow him, to abandon their former lives, and to follow him as teacher and master and Lord, particularly in our church-saturated, culturally Christian context, I'm just about done with asking people the question of whether or not they believe in Jesus or whether or not they're Christians. Those words have no meaning in our culture anymore because of the 66%. Rather, what I've gotten in the habit of doing is asking people whether they're followers of Christ because people seem to understand that better. They seem to understand that no one can follow Jesus without some tangible evidence that Jesus, in fact, guides and directs their lives. Who can claim to be Christ's disciple who has no fruit of repentance and faith and radical obedience? Answer, none. One of my aims in our study of Mark's gospel is to disabuse us of any notion that faith is simply a mental assent to a set of facts about a historical figure. The Bible never presents saving faith in such a way. And Mark, who wrote this gospel for a persecuted church in which those who claimed Christ were very often arrested, tried, and sentenced to die in Nero's gardens for the perverse enjoyment of a pagan crowd, will not allow us to take such a view of Jesus. So let's summarize this. Let's let's wrap all of this up. The Jesus who Mark presents is the divine son. Possessing absolute deity, absolute equality, and absolute sovereignty as God. The Jesus of Mark's gospel cannot be marginalized or compartmentalized into one tiny corner of my life. He cannot be ignored. He is either worshipped or he is rejected. A Christian, therefore, one who follows Christ, is one who worships Jesus as God, as divine. So the question I would ask you is, do you believe in a divine Jesus? 
Absolute deity, absolute equality, absolute sovereignty. The Jesus who Mark presents is the true Israel, who has journeyed in the wilderness and succeeded where the first Israel has failed and then returns to gather men and women into a new people, a new Israel. A Christian, therefore, is one who finds his or her essential identity in the people of God. They find their essential identity in being a part of the church whom Christ has purchased with his own blood, the new Israel that is marching through the wilderness of this world to Zion, the promised land. So I would ask you, where is your fundamental identity? Is your fundamental identity in being an American? Or being a father? Or being a pastor? Or a teacher? Or any other vocation? Or is your fundamental identity in being a part of the people whom God has redeemed through the blood of his son? And do the bumper stickers on your car bear out that that's your fundamental identity? Third, the Jesus whom God presents or Mark presents as a messianic prophet who proclaims the gospel of the kingdom and calls sinners to enter that kingdom through repentance and faith. A Christian, therefore, is someone who has been converted, who has recognized that the kingdom of God is an invisible, present reality from which I have been excluded by my sin from birth, and the only way to enter into that kingdom is to repent of my sin and to trust in Jesus. Have you been converted? Is your faith in Christ, and do you live the life of repentance? Fourthly, the Jesus whom Mark presents is the rabbinic master, a master who calls for disciples, not decisions. He calls for followers, not mere professions of faith. He calls for men and women and boys and girls to abandon all, to follow him, to learn from him, to become like him, and to join him in the mission of gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the face of the earth. A Christian, therefore, is a disciple who follows Christ, who listens to his word, who obeys his command, who imitates his life, who walks in his steps. So I don't ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? And I don't ask you whether you're a Christian. I ask whether you are today following Christ. This is the biblical Christ whom we must know, trust, and follow if we would be biblical Christians, if we would be in the 7% and not the other 66 Because on the last day, on the day of judgment, it will not matter what you marked on your census form or what you told the Barna surveyor who gave you a call. It's going to matter whether Jesus knows you as one of his followers. Are you a biblical Christian who follows the biblical Christ?